0: If you turn back in your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 15, Acts chapter 15. Um, I've, said, I've said this in the past uh, that uh, I'm convinced that some of the uh, most helpful ways to improve and strengthen your understanding of the faith And also, one of the most helpful ways outside of studying the scriptures themselves to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures is to study, um, become acquainted with the historic creeds of the church, some of the great creeds of the church, um, creeds, these uh, confession of faith um, that um, historically, uh, different seasons, churches, have made and they serve as a reminder to churches about those things that are most surely believed among them, the most vital parts of our faith, the major tenets of our faith. Um, we've never had a practice here of, of reading through a creed or reciting creeds. some congregations do um, and, and what these creeds w- would do is basically state uh, some of the um, yeah the, the main components of Christian truth, some of the, um, in a kind of systematic way, um, the, 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 the major truths uh, where, it, where it comes to Christian doctrine and, and belief and the things that we should uh, most uh, passionately and carefully defend and we can't afford to um, be, be wrong on, those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, those are I mean the point that we sta- the point that we stand in in, in in Christian history in the history of the church, we have the benefit of some of, of of work that has been done to create some of the most um, first of all extremely biblical scriptural creeds, but also very digestible so that uh, most of us can work our way through them uh, and 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 that by the time we've come to say reading through certain Creeds, we, we we know those things that are at the heart of the faith. We um, we 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 were able a couple years now. It's been a, year, a few years back to go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, I think in this entirety here over a long period of years um, at our, our Friday Bible study here. Um, I can't do that. I can't do it now. But it was definitely some of the most amazing thing, amazing things I've ever done. Um, to constantly come before what matters about our faith and to to seek god 's help to help us understand better and there's f- quite a few options for us now if you're seeking for creeds that we can read through uh, now one interesting thing about those creeds as well, uh, quite a few of them is that very often they were kind of forged in the um, in the heat of controversy they, they they're written in formed in response to you know, the need of churches at the time to clarify the doctrinal stances and to resist error, especially in certain major tenets of the faith. So you, you go back and you read around the history of some of our creeds, and you can see, you know, the, the vital point uh, that they are defending or arguing, um, the, the error they're trying to avoid, um, the, the 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 central truths of Scripture that they are wanting to uphold and saying that um, at no if, uh, if we will spend no cost uh, to uphold this and we cannot afford to um, be wrong on on this matter and very often it's in in that uh, in that heat of controversy um, that uh, certain um, truths and the importance of certain truths and clarity on certain truths have become apparent to the church and are now vested in in creeds and so on. and we will see that something similar happens here in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Um, we've just been we've been looking over the past two weeks at how chapters 13 and 14 introduce us to the first. Um, at least organized missionary journey in the book of Acts and Paul's first missionary journey. Um, And amongst other things that are accomplished, of course, there's a proclamation of the gospel and the desire to see men and women come to be saved, absolutely. But we also see that very much um, vital to the ministry and to the work of missions, at least as it is in the book of Acts, is the establishing of churches. Um, It seems like the method of the apostles and the missionaries of the first church was to go forth of course proclaim the gospel but with the intent of placing these new converts in local churches and, and building God's house and family everywhere um, and one of the things that we find that they were also com- committed to do um, and so this, this again this is a, it shows you the kind of connection that exists in biblical missions which we have to be careful to ensure that if we're going to engage in missions and support missions that we're, we're thinking through whether this sort of connections continue, uh, are, are being established, was that they, 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 they preached the gospel, and men and women came, and of course, there was a missionary there was a mission to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were turning to the Lord, and they were placed in churches under the um, guidance of called elders and so on, and one of the things that, the aims of this was to establish these folks in the faith, um, because the in a genuine sense the, the, the uh, matters of salvation it wasn't just a matter of how you started it's vitally about how you ended of course in a sense how you end when all is said and done actually does depend on how you start but it was, it was more than just how you started you, you had to persevere to the end and so they wanted to see these folks established well rooted in the faith something they pursued and Chapter 15 here reveals to us, gives us a, an example, gives us some insight to the um, extent to which the apostles and these first missionaries were committed to ensuring that those who they had preached the gospel to were established in the faith and um, the things that they thought were vital to um, to making sure that these converts were were. were Continue to be faithful disciples to, to Christ, um, and, and, and and we'll see uh, tonight that actually vital to establishing those churches in the first church was defending those truths that are at, at the heart of salvation. Uh, the the vital it, it was vital that uh, these new converts never forgot. Um, who it was that saved them and how they were saved. Matters of salvation uh, was, were vital, right? They had to keep holding on to the promise of grace in Jesus Christ. It was important for them to keep depending on the grace of God if they were to be saved. Um, they, they, they were not to be They were not to allow anyone to cause them to trade their hope for anything else. The hope always had to be um, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 15, we're going to see how um, in the first church, uh, uh, there was a need to... Establish this truth in the heart of the churches, in the heart of the Gentiles who had been preached to. Um, there, there came this attack on such a matter as a matter of salvation by grace. And by the time we finish chapter 15, there is this, this church's own credo statement and testimony to what um, salvation means and what salvation really is, and um, how we are saved and it was important for them to uphold this uh to uphold this truth um, and so let me show you that then by pointing you to three things here um that 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 will um, reveal that the, the the first church made the matters matter of salvation central to the uh the, to the Uh, and to the expression of faith and the establishing of these first churches. Um, And so the first thing we we see in this, I want to show you here, is that um, very early we see that those missionaries, and and of course this is Paul and Barnabas especially, but just in the first church in general, it was quickly decided, we, we see that Matters to do with salvation were worth fighting for and uh, is, is what we, we we come into here in chapter 15 we come into yeah, okay maybe I'm I might be dramatic in saying a fight there's nothing physical here but then we, we come into uh, we, we do come into uh, debate we come into conflict um, and uh, that's not something nice to see right in the church we, we don't want it's it's not a good thing to like conflict. We don't like seeing conflict. Um, But sometimes there are conflicts. There can be conflict in the church when people are in this serious disagreement. And that's the indication here there was serious, you know, hearty disagreement amongst these folks. And again, you read the New Testament, and generally, that's not something that's encouraged. The scriptures don't encourage that there should be, the church should be a place where there's unity and there's, um, there is agreement. The church doesn't, you know, doesn't encourage, the scriptures don't encourage the church to be a place of bickering. If you go to a local church and it's a place where there's constant bickering and there's a local church and we're always in disagreement and we're always, then there's something wrong. That's not, that's not right. Even though some of us, we thrive in a tense, what, what we call it today in 2022, a toxic Atmosphere. We thrive in it. You know, we just like really tense, as if you were raised in a barracks or something. You're warfare people, um, and so we, we're used to that. And we think, oh, it's okay. You know, we're always fighting, but that's not this spirit that God wants in the church. The, the church should be a place where there is peace. We, we strive. I was I was uh, having membership interviews with some other folks today, uh, and I said to them, one of the things they had to affirm was that they would they would strive to promote the peace of the church. You know, we strive for that, so we want peace in the church. But there are times when we have to fight. It'd be good if the only times we ever had conflict were in times like this, when there was debate and feeling for disagreement, when it was to do with matters with uh, that, that um, matters to do with salvation. Now the problem in the church, in in our churches today, is very often. We're fighting over much less. We're fighting over issues. We're fighting on issues over which we shouldn't be really fighting. We're fighting over what instruments we're playing in our singing and how many instruments we are playing. We shouldn't really be fighting over those things. Um, sometimes we're fighting um, about what Bible translation we use. Now, sometimes we should fight, but sometimes we really shouldn't be fighting. Is just... There's a good translation there. I like this translation. We really don't need to be dividing and having serious fightings over that. And so many other things that actually you can find that churches were fighting over the wrong things, were loggerheads over the wrong things. We can't unite over the wrong things. Uh, But there are those issues over which we have got to fight. We have to stand up and resist. And you might say those are... Those issues are those issues, those matters to do with salvation. When it comes to how we tell men and women they are saved, the way of salvation, the church has to be ready to fight. And very early on in this passage, you see that the church has to be ready to engage in disagreement, and even though it's not going to please some people and some people will not like it, but we we cannot um, we cannot allow that to. There's there's no there's no unity where this kind of truth is compromised. There will be some kind of there will be at some level some division if this kind of truth is being compromised. And that's what happens here, right? Because there were some who came down from Judea. So this was they came down for the church from the churches where there was uh, a majority number of, you might say, of Jewish believers. And they'd come down to the churches now in, in Antioch and so on, where Paul and Barnabas had been doing ministry, and where there'd now been a significant number of Gentile believers who hadn't learned the way of Judaism, if you want, and were now being brought into the people of God. And they were now calling themselves the people of God. They were calling themselves children of God. They were trusting Jesus Christ, but they didn't have, They weren't. they weren't Jewish. They didn't have than a lot of historic Jewish traditions. They just believed that they could worship God simply because they called on the name of Jesus. And there came some people from the, the mother church, if you want, the, 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 the first churches, that, that were, the churches that commissioned um, the, 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 the missionaries and the, the witnesses who went to these Gentiles and preached the gospel to them. So they're kind of like all the brotherish kind of churches. They, they were here first. They have a greater reputation. They, they, they might have seemed to be more acquainted even, you would, have, you would have thought, with the faith than these new Gentile churches. And they said, listen, yes, it's true that you guys, we're not denying that you can become the people of God. We, we accept that, you know. That was really a hard pill for us to swallow. But yes, Gentiles can serve God and you can worship God. And we're delighted by the fact that you call on Jesus and you're changing and so on and so forth. But you can't do so unless you, you, you need to realize that it's, it's, it's the Jews who, to whom salvation belongs. You, you need to realize that, you know, as a, as a people, as, 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 and, and, and as far as Judaism is concerned, we have been doing this thing about trying to know God and worship God for years. And in all the years that we've been doing this, never have I seen anyone who thought, for example, that you could worship God and not be circumcised, or you could worship God and not imbibe certain aspects of the law of Moses as you folks seem to do. Understandably, it's not your natural way of living, but if you really want to worship God, it's one thing. Yes, it's good that you're calling on Jesus, and I'm not saying you need to call on Jesus to be saved, but you need a little more, they said. You need to imbibe the custom of Moses, otherwise you cannot be saved. That was the issue. It wasn't so much even that they were suggesting that these folks should simply imbibe the law of Moses. You could could be circumcised if you wanted. And today I know that there's folks who still circumcise their children. That's fine for you to do that. But it cannot have anything to do with what it means to be saved. You can imbibe so much of the law of Moses as you want. You can choose to make Saturday, your day of rest. Say, I'm just going to sleep every Saturday, because I like the idea of the Sabbath. You can do that. You can change your diet around, and say, you know what, I, I like how in the law the, the kind of foods that are that are, were clean and unclean. And you know what, I don't even like eating. Pig. I don't like eating pork because I don't rate pigs. You can do that all you please if you want, if that's if you think it's going to help you build your muscle and so on and so forth. But it can have nothing to do with how a man or a woman is made right before God, how you are saved. And this is what these folks were suggesting. They were attempting to uh, alter it, to distort the way of salvation, of how does How is a man or a woman made right with God? How do we become worshippers of the true and living God? How do we know that our sins are forgiven? And how do we know that we are free from the guilt of sin? How? And the apostles had taught that it's through the work of the crucified king. It's through the grace of Jesus. It's all of Christ, all of his work, and nothing of our own. And where that was being denied, where there were attempts made, because let me remind you, these folks didn't say that Jesus doesn't save. They actually were saying Jesus saved. What they were saying, though, is Jesus saves you as long as you add the Lord of Moses to it. Jesus saves you as long as you add circumcision to it and... When it comes to do with salvation and the starting matters of salvation, that's worth fighting for. And it's interesting because at points in the book of Acts, the folks who are teaching this are referred to as brothers. So they were actually members of the church. Somewhere along the line, maybe because they belonged to the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, they had been unable to leave this side of their understanding of the faith behind. They had believed that they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in this proclamation of his resurrection, but they found it hard to detach themselves from their tradition and from their uh, the veneration of Moses, who was a great prophet indeed. But they couldn't fathom that they could they would have to do away with all the convictions that they had that living the way of Moses was vital to to salvation. And so, although they had become part of the church, they hadn't settled on. What You might call it this new doctrine of the church. They hadn't settled on the doctrine of the church. Um, But it didn't matter that these men were called brothers. They were teaching the wrong thing on matters of salvation, and it needed to be corrected. It didn't matter that what they were teaching had some historic credibility to it. That is, they were teaching about the law of Moses. You, You know there was a time where it was actually true that not to be circumcised could have removed you from the covenant people of God. There was a time when it, it was true that to be, at least for the Jews, as a, Jew, as, as a Jew, to belong to the people of God, you took this symbol, this sign of your being covenanted to God, of you belonging to God. And so there, there is, this is not like they were bringing just paganism, into the Christian faith. They were bringing something that was historically credible. There was powerful arguments they could make in favor of this position they were taking. It did not matter because when it came to the matter of salvation, the church had to be clear. And the church was going to fight for that. And, and this is, these are matters worth fighting for. And God forbid that we be so distracted by petty issues that we forget what we are here to fight for. Because nothing suggests to me that if error could rise up in a church where the Apostle Paul was present and where Barnabas was present and where the first apostles were present, that error could not rise up in a church where only Brother Kendi and Deacon Remy is present. Right? Nothing suggests to me that we cannot be confronted with similar error. Nothing, conf- con- nothing convinced me that we, would, we do not also have a calling to be on our guard and to be ready to fight the good fight of defending matters such as salvation. Now, l- let me just say generally, we we ought to be alert to the fact that because the Bible says false teachers will rise and because Satan continues to attack the church, there's a t- there's a, there is a time to fight. Right. So I've said that we should love peace and that's say that without, without equivocation. We should love peace in the life of the church. But, we, but in a sense, we also, we're also soldiers. We're family men, but we're also soldiers. We're, fam- we're a family, we're a house of God. There's a, there's a way in which we're also an army ready to fight the good fight of faith. And at least we know that when it comes to teachings, when it comes to ministry that attempts to undermine the doctrine of salvation, that's a time... We have to be ready to stand and fight and resist and say, no, we can't go with you there. And the church, the church has experienced that. The, 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 the divide today, the significant divide that, that, that there is between uh, say what you might call uh, Protestantism or evangelicals and Roman Catholicism, for example, is along those lines. is saying, here's Roman Catholicism with serious historical credibility. Here's Roman Catholicism with people that you would even call, and and there's people within there that you'd even call brother and brothers and sisters, but they are getting it wrong on the matter of salvation coming through grace alone, by faith alone, and we cannot, and we have to fight. We'll fight. We, we We won't just say, it's okay, we agree to disagree. No, because these are matters to do with. Salvation. Um, and the second thing to say is, and, and so we see that salvation is worth fighting for. Salvation is worth fighting for. What, what are we fighting to say? What, what is it that Paul uh, and the apostles and the church decided that they had to, you know, they, 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 they called this council. So uh, uh, when, 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 when Paul starts to hear that people have come from Judea, come from that area, where there's a predominant Jewish, Jewish element, and they've come to these Gentiles and started saying this, the Apostle Paul does uh, this amazing thing. You know what he does? He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to, as I say, you might call it the mother church. He goes back to the church where there was a prevailing number of Jews again, so that they might affirm with him what might seem to them this new doctrine, but I don't know if we call it new, but they might affirm with him the doctrine of salvation that he was affirming, that that, that the Gentiles could be saved apart from having to obey the law of Moses. He goes back so that they would realize this is not just just something that's going on amongst a, a Gentile congregation. This is not some agenda I have now that I'm a minister to the Gentiles. This is that which the Spirit of God has revealed to us through the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's the second thing to say, right? What are we fighting for? The the church is fighting, and when they meet in this council, and there's differing voices, where there's voices of the leading folks, the apostle Peter stands up and he speaks, and then Paul and Barnabas, they're given an audience to speak, and they make their they they make their argument, they make their plea, and then James, uh, the the brother of Jesus, who has this uh, prominent, he's a leader in the life of the church, he speaks. What are they all testifying to? Salvation is by grace alone. And so through faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Or salvation is by grace alone and so it's by faith alone. So uh, Peter says, right, the the Bible says after this this debate is brought forward and these folks are saying, oh, no, salvation requires works and so on and so forth. And salvation requires that these Gentiles, they have to add the law of Moses. Uh, The Bible says um, that Peter stands up from verse 7. and Peter says, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to some of the things he says, but in verse 11, he says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone. And, and so, by the attempts that you are making to suggest to these Gentiles that they need faith plus, so that it's not just faith alone that saves, but, but faith plus works. By the attempts to do that, what you are doing is undermining our testimony that salvation comes through grace alone. If salvation comes through grace alone, then the only way to receive it is faith alone. Uh, I think it was uh, the reformers who used to refer to, who, who in trying to explain how faith is the means by which we receive the grace of God and why faith saves alone, they would call faith the instrument or faith the open hand. Faith is an open hand by which we receive God's grace. Faith is our testifying to God that we can do nothing to save, be saved. I can do nothing to cleanse my sin. It's All I have is an open hand to receive, as the hymn writer um, says, you know, famously, nothing in my hand I bring. I'm not going to bring the circumcision of Moses, as much as it has so much historic credibility, I'm not going to bring anything in the law of Moses. I'm not going to bring. It. I'm going to bring open hands to receive an open hand of faith to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And the apostles say, "This is what we were commissioned to speak and to preach." Now, 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 as far as chronolo- chronologically, this event. Probably takes place. So the, the General Council takes place probably like a, at least over a decade after um, after the Day of Pentecost, right? At least over a decade after that, after um, the, the 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 apostles had begin to uh, had been commissioned to preach this gospel, and so years after um, after Paul after Peter, sorry, had visited the house of one Cornelius and had been called to proclaim. Faith to the Gentiles, and and, and and Peter makes that point. Peter makes the point about how. Do you remember when I when I went to the house of Cornelius, who I thought he's not he's not a Jew, and, and so I, I was even hesitant to go into his house until God says, "What I've called clean, don't call unclean." So yeah, I went into his house, and I was about to sh- I was sharing the gospel with them, um, and I I wonder if Peter is sharing it with some some resistance in his mind, like, can can Gentiles really be saved? Like, they're not circumcised, their food's not kosher, like, can God really call them? He said, and before I finished preaching, God had poured out his Holy Spirit on them. You know what Peter says, he says, who am I to to, to withhold baptism from them? God had baptized them with the Holy Spirit. How can I withhold from them the baptism by water? And the point Peter makes there is, don't you see that, all the way back in the house of Cornelius, God showed that he gives salvation to men apart from any works on their part. But all he receives is faith. So this is the way uh, Peter states it in in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And this is what he says in in verse 8. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. All God required from the Gentiles then, when he was going to give them his Holy Spirit, was what? A heart that received him. Salvation is through faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. These Gentiles heard the message of the gospel. And when they heard it, they felt their need for God, their need for salvation. They felt like only Jesus could save them. They were convinced that only Jesus can wash away my sin. And they received the grace of God. They were saved. The spirit, the token of salvation was given to them apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from any observance of the law of Moses. Might we say in in a way that's probably more more pertinent to uh, to our modern society, apart from baptism even, they received salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Later on in this passage, uh, v- verse 12, uh, and so uh, the, Paul and Barnabas, take they stand up, and they're making the same testimony. They're saying the same thing. Salvation is by grace alone. And, uh, and, and their witness is a little more reserved. All they say is, when, when we went and did ministry among the Gentiles, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out his Spirit upon us in miraculous power, he bore, witness to his, to, he, he bore witness to his ministry among the Gentiles by doing great miracles. Can't you see the same miracles that were done amongst the Jews that were evidence that God was with us and was pouring out his spirit are the same miracles that were done among the Gentiles. Salvation is by grace. It was done among the Gentiles, but they hadn't been circumcised. It done among the Gentiles, they hadn't observed the law of Moses, but God did miracles among them because salvation is by grace alone. And then lastly, James stand up and he bears witness to the same thing. But James goes as far as saying that God is going to save the Gentiles apart from any works apart from them subscribing to Judaism, is not simply a phenomenon that we are witnessing in our time. Yes, it is. But it's a phenomenon that we're witnessing as part of the fulfillment of God's plan from eternity past to save the Gentiles. He says, he ultimately says, even from the day of Abraham, Even from the time of David, God's way of saving men and women had always been by grace through faith. The salvation of the Gentiles is foretold in the scriptures. These Gentiles, just as the Jews who were given, who had all these laws were God's people and they were the the, the people called by my name, James says, so the Gentiles who are without the law God had also called them uh, people of of his own name, a people by his name. He'd also called them his own people because God, salvation, and you you, you see this fleshed out, of course, far more uh, logically, if you want, by the Apostle Paul in his epistles, in, in a book like Romans, salvation has always been by grace through faith. No man, no woman ever received the grace of God ever knew God, ever walked with God, was ever made a worshiper, was ever made a child of God by anything they did to earn God's righteousness. It was always by grace. It was always believing that I can't do anything to reach out to God. He must reach for me. It was always by believing that I can't do anything to make myself ready to meet with God. He must prepare me. Salvation by grace, through faith. What we come to see is God's grace is made available to men through the work of Jesus Christ. That it's through the grace of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus is the grace of the eternal, innocent Son of God who came into our world and obeyed God's law perfectly. But even to the point of the cross, that he might bear the wrath of God. He became sin, him who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's how we are saved, by a total exchange. My total sin for his total righteousness, and I can only receive that by faith. I receive it by faith. Salvation is through grace alone, the grace of Jesus Christ, and on the part of the sinner, on the part of the man or woman who is far from God, on the part of the man or the woman who sees that there's an unbridgeable gap apart from God's grace, is faith alone, away with trusting in anything that you have done away from trusting in any good or clean record you think you have kept, away from trusting in your ethnicity or your uh, your background, away from trusting in some religious deed or work, away from trusting in the amount of prayers you have uttered, um, away from trusting in the amount of scriptures you have memorized, away from trusting in the amount of services you have attended You are receiving God's grace through faith alone. I trust what Jesus has done. And God becomes your own. And God receives you. He welcomes you. And he gives you the right. To them that believe, he gives the right to become the sons of God. And this is truth worth fighting for. And this is truth that we proclaim. There will be no greater sign that we have departed from the way of God than when this truth becomes quiet, then when this truth becomes distorted or misunderstood. This is what we're called to preach and to teach. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I'll say this quickly, last point in closing. But that this truth about salvation unites the church. It is heresy that divides it. But a truth about salvation It unites us. Although we do see, although we do see that there is, there is a a debate here. There is disagreement here. It's because there were those who had bought into the lie, those who were distorting the truth about salvation by by grace, and and this error was attempting to divide the church. But the way the church, protect his unity is not by compromising on the truth, it's by affirming the truth. And as that is done, you see that there is a unity that is still forged among the faithful. Whether it's the unity of the churches coming together to deal with the issue, Paul is not afraid. He's not not afraid to say, hold on, let's leave the predominantly perhaps Gentile congregation where of course, they're, they're not following Jewish practices, but these Jews who seem to, who you would expect to know better or who might seem to have some kind of reputation, they're coming now and trying to uh, twist the minds of these believers. And he says, let's go back to the congregation that they might have come from. Let's go back to the place where there's a predominant number of, of Jews. And he goes to Jerusalem. And at this point, all the, church, the churches come together. You see, the truth is going to unite them. By the time... Peter has spoken and Paul has spoken and Barnabas and, and James have spoken. They're all reading from the same hymn sheet. They're all singing the same song. The truth about salvation, it, it unites them. And furthermore, because the report that's sent back to the Gentile churches, that's sent back to the churches in Antioch, that we read from verse 22 onwards, right? There's a united letter. What is that united? What does that letter say? That letter says, it says that, Salvation is by grace alone. That letter says that they should not be burdened by these folks who had come to distress them. That letter says that if Jews are, the Jews are saved by grace, so are the Gentiles. And you know, as, as you read on, the Bible says that the, the, the content of the letter rejoices. It fills them with joy. There's joy in the churches. The, the, the truth of salvation by grace alone It causes joy, it unites the church, especially because, of course, there is now no ground for distinction. There is no reason to say the Jews are better than the Gentiles or the Gentiles are better than the Jews when we know that the only ground for salvation is the grace of God and that faith, faith is the thing that unites us to God's grace, not the color of my skin um, not my my education, not my social status, my wealth, n- nothing like that. It's We're united by this, God's grace and faith in the grace of God. I remember speaking to um, an older minister a long time ago, and he said, you know, if you want unity in the churches, he said, oh, he said, oh so you have, I was talking about, there's the, a, the, 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 there was a, a separation in the ages in our church. There was older folks. There was younger folks. He says, you know what? If you want unity in the church, encourage the people to talk together about matters of salvation. He says, because that thing unites them all. And he had a point. We, we all are united on the matters of Jesus Christ. In other things, you might be wealthier than me or you might be more intelligent than me. But when it comes to how we are saved by grace alone. It's by faith alone. This truth unites the church. And and just this last thing, because it's important to, 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 to mention this, you know that when the church is dealing with this accusation that comes from these teachers that says, oh, they're not observing the law of Moses. They need to observe the laws of Moses to be saved. That's outrightly rejected. They don't need to be circumcised to be saved. It's not faith plus. It's faith alone. But there's some instructions given to them. Right? The church in Jerusalem says, let's tell our Gentile brothers and sisters who are newer to the faith than us and who need us to guide them at some level, absolutely. Let's tell them that salvation is by grace and through faith alone, so they don't need to observe the laws of Moses. But let's also encourage them and look at verse uh, 19. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I want to trouble them. Uh, we're not we're going to trouble them. Let, them. let them rejoice in the freedom that Christ has purchased for them. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So there are still some restrictions made. But here's what's, hap- here's what's happening. The, the liberty that salvation acquires for these folks is not the liberty to sin. That's not the point here, Right? Let's tell the Gentiles they are free in Jesus Christ. But true freedom does not make you enslaved to sin. And so encourage them to turn from their life of paganism. So it, it would seem that for the Gentiles, you know, we read sexual morality, but probably this was sexual morality that was also attached to the temple worship that they were, they were used to, accustomed to. And perhaps even the whole language of, um, of, of, of avoiding... Abstaining from things polluted by idols, and from um, and from strangle and things that have been strangled, and, and from blood. Probably the, the 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 reason for that is those are things that were associated with the pagan worship of the day. So ultimately, this is a calling for them to turn their back from pagan action and pagan sacrifices, and from the sexual immorality that was part of. They had turned to the living God, so let's just tell them to continue to turn from their idols. The liberty that salvation brings is not a liberty to continue in sin, right? And so that's, that's not the point that they were making. But also, perhaps, another thing that's happening here is they're saying, and let them use their liberty, but not to offend their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, and so maybe that's also why... Um, because later on in the in the in, in the epistles, Paul explores the idea of should you be eating meats that are sacrificed to idols, and Paul ex- explores that at some length. And there's a two, there's a, like a two-pronged answer to that. In and of itself, meat is meat. You can you can eat meat, but I won't eat that meat if it's going to cause my brother offence. And so the liberty that salvation brings is one not a liberty to sin, but neither is it a liberty to cause offense to the conscience of your brother and sister. So these Gentiles can live free in the liberty that, salve- that, that Christ has purchased for them, the, the, the liberty that comes through salvation by grace. But that doesn't mean that they're going to keep on living in sinful attitudes and sinful practices, no. And neither does it mean that they're not going to be concerned for the consciences of others to the extent that they can be and ought to be. Right? It's a liberty not to be used as a cloak for sin, not to be used uh, to cause offense, but a liberty to glorify the living God. And in so doing, you see that the salvation by grace, when we affirm it and when we proclaim it, oh, it brings great joy and unity to the church. Oh, brothers and sisters, uh, even today we cannot afford to be, uh, to underestimate the importance of this truth that we see the first church willing to fight for and to affirm. This is the power of gospel teaching. In a true sense, this is why we are here. We exist to proclaim that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I have not thought through in every, every way or every possibility that that could be attempted to be undermined among us. I just know that we cannot afford for that to happen. I just know that we are powerless, that we are in one sense, pointless if we stop proclaiming from the rooftops with hearts full and free and convicted that God saves us through the grace of his Son and are all those who believe on him are set free. I just know that we must come here Lord's Day after Lord's Day to bask in that, to confess that, to explore and dig deep into that, to plead for that, to receive that, to teach that, that all who call on Jesus will be saved apart from any works of their own. Amen.